Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You should celebrate yourself every day. But some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. A note to listeners. Today's episode mentions sexual assault. Zelda Perkins used to be a personal assistant. Her boss was a difficult person. But there was another side of him, too. He was also an extremely exciting, brilliant, you know, stimulating person to be around. He was also a rapist. Zelda Perkins' boss was Harvey Weinstein. She had been warned about him and managed to stay safe. Her colleague, Rowena Chu, was not so fortunate. We were at the Venice Film Festival and he, he tried to rape her. She was extremely distressed. Um, she was shaking, very distressed, clearly in shock. Um, didn't want anybody to know, was absolutely terrified of the consequences, what would happen. And I spoke with her and you know, tried to calm her for about half an hour and then I went straight downstairs to where Harvey was having a business meeting on the terrace and told him he needed to come with me right away. For me to have broken into a meeting like that was very unusual. And he did not question me. He got up and came with me straight away because he knew why I was was as angry and serious as I was. And he said nothing at all had happened. And he swore on the life of his wife and his children, which was his his best get-out-of-jail card that he used quite a lot. That is from Zelda's first interview about all of this with the BBC. What happened next was pretty rough for both Zelda and Rowena. They left their jobs. Rowena didn't want to go to the police. So they went to Miramax Management, who told them they'd better lawyer up. Once the lawyers presented a damages agreement as our only option. The one thing that I was very clear about was that we had to find some way of stopping Harvey's behaviour and two, that I didn't want money to change hands at any point. At this point I was told the only way that we would even get Miramax to the table was by making a monetary request. I mean, it, it was a very intense agreement in terms of the secrecy. I was not allowed to ever speak to anybody about even really my time working at Miramax. I was not allowed to speak to a therapist 
without them signing a confidentiality agreement. And I think at this point, once I realised that this was my only arsenal, the only thing I was going to have to try and prevent Harvey's behaviour um, was to create an agreement that was as binding to him and as difficult for him as it was going to be for me. And the only way that I could uh, accept the fact that money was going to have to change hands was that he was going to have to do an awful lot for that money. He had to attend therapy for his behaviour and that I was to be present in his first therapy session because I was very concerned that he wouldn't talk about the relevant reason that he was at a therapist. That therapy session never happened. Harvey Weinstein did not hold up his end of the bargain. He went on assaulting women for the next 20 years because he knew something that Zelda did not. The non-disclosure agreement that he had struck with Zelda and Rowena, trading his money and his behavioral reform in exchange for their silence, it was unenforceable. Weinstein knew that there would be no consequences for him for breaking his promise. Meanwhile, Zelda believed just the opposite. She told me how she felt about it at the time when I spoke with her last week. I mean, I genuinely thought people's lives and careers would be at risk. I was genuinely afraid for my own. I mean, it sounds dramatic saying I was afraid for my own life, but Miramax ran like the mafia, really. We all were under Harvey. He was, he was the Don. And, and it wasn't just in Miramax. The whole world, you know, echoed that behavior. It was not just Harvey Weinstein, but an NDA agreement that haunted Zelda for the next 20 years. Not the actual agreement, perhaps, but the memory of it, the knowledge that it existed. Because you see, Zelda wasn't even allowed to keep a copy of that agreement. I mean, after all, the agreement itself was smoking gun proof that Weinstein had something terrible to hide, something that he would agree to go to therapy in order to keep hidden. So Zelda couldn't go and see that contract, but she knew that it existed. She knew it was there, locked away in her own lawyer's files somewhere and in the files of Weinstein's lawyers. She started to overcome her fear in time and began speaking off the record to a couple of journalists, Jody Cantor of the New York Times and Ronan Farrow. And when she learned from them that seven other women alleged that they too had been raped by Harvey Weinstein, that's when she decided to speak out whatever the consequences. I felt I had a moral duty to break my agreement and I felt genuinely I was prepared to go to prison and be sued. And that's when she learned what Harvey Weinstein had known all along. The contract was a bluff. She was not imprisoned. She was not sued. She told the truth, and she was believed. Now for the latest on Harvey Weinstein, the New York Times reporting allegations by numerous women who say the Hollywood mogul sexually harassed them. At least 35 women accusing Weinstein of sexual misconduct. Harvey Weinstein is on trial for rape based on Jessica Mann's allegations. Today, she took the stand recounting three separate assaults. We begin tonight with the Harvey Weinstein verdict, guilty of rape and criminal sexual assault, not guilty on three other counts. Tonight, Weinstein is now behind bars. He faces up to 29 years in prison. Now, the impact of Zelda Perkins and other very famous women telling the truth about Harvey Weinstein has, of course, been earth-shaking. The Me Too movement has been the end of so much secrecy around rape and sexual misconduct. But when it comes to the secrecy generated by NDA contracts, wild contracts, overreaching gag order contracts, unenforceable contracts, well, just the opposite is true. As more people than ever before are coming forward with allegations against predators, more people than ever before are being asked to sign gag orders. And it is often their own lawyers telling them that they must do so. But what I don't understand is how we sat in a room with representation for ourselves, 
council from Doughty Street Chambers, which is where Amal Clooney is, you know, it's a human rights, very famous human rights chambers. And none of those lawyers told us that what we were signing was unenforceable or inappropriate. And they weren't breaking the regulatory rules for how solicitors behave. Zelda Perkins has teamed up with my guest today, Julie McFarlane, on a global campaign to rid the world of NDAs. It's called Can't Buy My Silence, and it launches globally this week. Julie McFarlane is a scholar of law. She is Distinguished Professor Emerita at the University of Windsor, where she no longer works for reasons that will soon become clear. She is an Order of Canada recipient and founder of the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. Her most recent book is called Going Public, A Survivor's Journey from Grief to Action. And Julie McFarlane joins me in a moment. Wait for it. This episode is brought to you by James Jarvis, Courtney Kemp, Melissa Medeiros, Ryan Gerber, Alex Varney, Angela Long, Ellen Russell, and Sophie. Hi, my name is Sophie. I am a security analyst with the federal government. I live in Ottawa. And I support Canada Land because it's the first time in my life I've ever had anything from a news aspect challenge my old beliefs as a conservative and then now new beliefs as a socialist, NDP, liberal, whatever you want to call it. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars and I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. My name is Julie McFarlane, and I was until the end of last year a professor of law at the University of Windsor, where I'm distinguished university professor, but I left the University of Windsor and discussed their NDA policy. They like to suggest that I retired, but I didn't actually retire. I left and discussed, and I'm now working on a new international campaign to persuade not only universities, but other corporations and institutions to stop using non-disclosure agreements to gag people about their bad experiences. Can you tell me in a bit more detail about your bad experience? There was an actual incident that played out. It wasn't just that you read the NDA policy and, and took issue with it. That's correct, yes. And I was not a direct victim, but I think my story is a good illustration of the insidious reach of NDAs and how many people they affect. This actually involved a former colleague of my own at the University of Windsor who was investigated and subsequently terminated for the harassment, intimidation, and general 
bad behavior towards students. That was the uh, the way in which his termination was described in, in his termination letter. And this was something that I had firsthand experience of because many of those students had come to me with their issues about his very extreme misconduct. So when he left the university, we all felt enormously relieved. And then about six months later, I started to get telephone calls from other law schools asking me for an off-record reference, an offline reference, uh, and asking, why did he leave the University of Windsor? There's nothing here in his application to us for a position that explains why he left a tenure position at the University of Windsor. And that was the moment at which the penny dropped for me. And I realized that the university had given him a non-disclosure agreement. And I immediately called my president, who I'd been working with on his departure and the investigation for some time. And I asked him, did you give him a non-disclosure agreement to which he said, I'm not allowed to talk to you about that? which is code for, we gave him a non-disclosure agreement. So I obviously said what was truthful when I was asked by my colleagues in other law schools to explain why he left. But the University of Windsor hid behind the non-disclosure agreement that they gave him and refused to corroborate and to say that what I was saying was truthful. And at that point, I didn't have access to the termination document and the settlement agreements that they made with him. I now have those documents as well as the sparkling letter of reference that they gave him at the same time as they terminated him for gross misconduct. So I was convinced as a result of this that something needed to be done about what was clearly the widespread use of these kinds of cover-ups to achieve what's often called, there's even an expression for it, pass the trash to another institution so that somebody who has been terminated for harassment or other kinds of misconduct or bad behavior can be hired by another institution with apparently them knowing nothing of what that history was. Were you violating your university's promise to him when you told other universities why he in fact actually had been dismissed? No, I was not because I did not sign the non-disclosure agreement. I would never have signed it. In fact, in this particular instance, the agreement was made between the employer, the soon-to-be past employer of the university, and the individual faculty member. It did not involve any of his victims, and it did not involve myself. So, no, I was not breaking anything. I was speaking the truth. But because the truth was hidden in the NDA, he was able to bring a legal action against me for so-called defamation, which is, of course, the way that we penalize people who don't tell the truth. And because the University of Windsor refused to produce the documents showing that I was telling the truth, I now have a defamation order against me in Trinidad, a jurisdiction that I'm sure was selected because I couldn't subpoena anybody to give truthful evidence in Ontario. The document that would have helped your case in fighting his defamation claim is a document that your university refused to share with you because of their contractual obligations to him? That is exactly correct. I now have that document. I have all the documents because, let's just say, a third party with, I suspect, a guilty conscience sent them to me, but not until after a court had made an order against me for defamation in Trinidad. Were you a tenured professor? Yes. Oh, yes. I was actually the highest rank of the university. I was a distinguished university professor. And, uh, and I also have the Order of Canada in 2020 for my work with self-represented litigants. Why did you have to leave then? Because I felt that the conditions under which um, I was obliged to stay and to work alongside people who had been willing to sacrifice me to what I think is a completely immoral non-disclosure agreement, I couldn't reconcile that with my own personal good health. Uh, I wasn't interested in being part of a university that was willing to do this. And I spent quite a lot of time, about two years, trying to persuade the university that even though what they did to me was wrong, if they could just move on and now make a new policy saying they would not give non-disclosure agreements and pass the trash in future, then we could let bygones be bygones. But they were unwilling to make that, that move, which is unfortunate because my belief is 
in part as a result of our new international campaign, they're going to be forced to do this in any case. I think universities and other organizations and institutions will shortly be obliged to stop giving non-disclosure agreements because the impact of them on people like myself, but also on the other potential victims of the people who get passed along um, is so harmful and so wrong that I believe that we are building a very strong case to have them made unenforceable. You know, you just shared a very specific story about, about one specific bad actor and the way that one administration dealt with it. But I think that listeners should probably be aware that this is incredibly common. I mean, this might even be considered standard practice. And it's far from something that was um, dealt with by Me Too. It probably spiked the instances of this dramatically because all of a sudden, any organization or institution that said, okay, we've been tolerating this sexual abuser, this harasser, but it's going to bite us in the ass. How do we get rid of them? And then they cut a deal. And the deal often includes, look, we don't want you here anymore. We're going to give you some money and we're not going to say anything bad about you. And uh, whoever gets you gets you and it's and you're their problem now, right? And, and because these are secret agreements, we don't really know how often this happens because it, it happens in secret. That's correct. Although we are beginning to get some data. Um, as someone who's been a lifelong empirical researcher, data is very important to me. And what's frustrating about this is that, as you say, it's paradoxical. These are secret agreements. How do we get that information? But we're working um, in our campaign with a partner in the UK who has been putting out a survey now for a couple of years to people who've been in particular bullied and harassed in their workplaces. And that survey asks them anonymously to say whether or not they've signed a non-disclosure agreement. And one of the possible answers it gives them, as well as yes or no, is can't say for legal reasons. And based on that data, which is now approximately 600 respondents, we know that about one in three people who uh, have reported an incident of harassment or intimidation or bullying at their workplace have been asked to sign an NDA. Because there's really no other legal reason that could result in you ticking that box but an NDA itself. So that gives you your answer. Exactly. And the other problem is that at the beginning of going into a complaints process. This is not just the outcome of settlements. There are lawyers who would tell you that up to 95% of civil settlements now include some kind of non-disclosure agreement. But that's something that is still very difficult to prove, but it's going to be at least one in three or possibly closer to nine out of 10. But there are also non-disclosure agreements being forced on people when they make a complaint in the first place. So the other thing that we're very interested in shedding some light on is that if you come forward with a complaint before your complaint even gets investigated, you're often now asked to sign a non-disclosure agreement, which often will mean that you can't talk not only to the press or put it on social media, which, you know, might be one set of constraints. But these kinds of non-disclosure agreements often include a, a constraint on speaking to your family or your friends or even to your therapist. And this is often, of course, following a traumatic incident. We likely have seen a big spike in this since the Me Too movement as companies have shuffled off their unwanted people and, and struck deals with them. Yeah, I mean, ironically, the Me Too movement, of course, put so much more focus on the fact that this kind of behavior was commonplace in workplaces and in particular certain kinds of workplaces. So, for example, we know that the hospitality and the accommodations industry um, are notorious for incredibly high levels of sexual harassment and the Me Too movement has been terrific at shedding light on those. But those are the same industries that are using NDAs where somebody brings forward a complaint of harassment uh, simply to silence people and to pass whoever it was onto someone else, uh, either to another organization or they just keep them and the person who complains gets to leave. But the person who complains is gagged by the non-disclosure agreement and they can't speak to anybody about what it was that happened to them. I mean, that's almost like the pre-Me Too rule book was uh, the best possible outcome most complainants could hope for is here's some money, go away and shut up forever. 
That's right. And I mean, the other thing that, you know, for me as a lawyer and a law professor is so appalling to see about these settlements that people talk to me about now is that they are being bought off for incredibly small amounts of money. But the impact on them of signing this gag order for the rest of their lives is so intense. You know, people talk about basically having the sort of Damocles hanging over their heads, you know, worried that anything that they say to anybody might then get repeated and somebody might find out that, in fact, they've they've broken their agreement. Some of these non-disclosure agreements even include a penalty that sets a particular amount of money that is payable every time somebody breaks, supposedly, breaks their NDA. And this is much more a perceived fear than an actual fear because, of course, the company isn't following you around with a video camera making sure that you're not talking to your bestie about what happened to you when you were sexually harassed at work. But people feel that incredible fear and paranoia, and it very successfully silences them. I want to return to that idea of perceived consequences versus actual consequences. But before I do, uh, I I just want to broaden our lens a little bit here, because we've been talking about non-disclosure agreements in a very specific context. When you have abuse, harassment, uh, somebody who has to leave for those reasons, or, you know, their accuser has to leave. In fact, these are incredibly common things that happen in employment contracts all the time. And my starting position when I became an employer was this is a news organization and we believe in transparency and nobody who works here is going to have to sign any kind of non-disparagement, non-disclosure agreement. As Canada Land professionalized and became a a grown-up company and we brought in lawyers for this and lawyers for that, (laughs) a labor lawyer told me, what are you, out of your mind? You have to get people to sign an NDA. I mean, that's just common boilerplate stuff when it comes to severance packages or anything. It should be in their contract on their way in, and it should be in their severance agreement or whatever it is on their way out. And that's just how, that's how everybody else does it. And I had uh, conversations where I'm like, well, look, I'll concede that I don't want people talking about anything to do with our sources. There is some secrecy in terms of trade secrets, I suppose you could call them. But really, it's just it's about journalistic work. And there's a need for specific numbers around our uh, business deals with other companies. But outside of that, if anyone wants to say anything about what kind of a boss I am, or, like they, they should be able to. And I had to fight our lawyer for a modified version of an NDA that allows people to just talk about the workplace. So, you know, what I came away with from that with was an understanding that NDAs, and I know this also from the other context that I encounter NDAs, is when I'm trying to report on other workplaces, you do have extreme cases like our work on the WE organization where they have these incredibly prohibitive agreements where employees They're not allowed to talk for the rest of their life about what they saw. And if they break that agreement, their children could be held liable. Yes, I've seen those too. They're not that uncommon. How common are NDAs and how common are these, I guess, I don't don't know what an overreach is, but it seems like a wild reach to me, like uh, these very extreme NDAs. How common have they become? Well, first of all, I want to say congratulations to you for pushing back to the lawyer. And I, I think that your story illustrates a very common experience that people have, which is when it comes to something like a non-disclosure agreement or a non-disparagement agreement, lawyers tell clients habitually, this is just the way everybody does things. And, you know, in some ways they are our best source for the fact that this is the way everybody does things. And I've been told by lawyers, you're going to find non-disclosure or non-disparagement agreements in about 95 five percent of agreements that are made now, both agreements coming into organizations and agreements going out of organizations. But if you go back to what non-disclosure agreements were originally designed to protect, it was in fact trade secrets. It was proprietary information. It would be in the tech industry in the 1980s, there were a lot of very important innovators developing new programs, new software, new platforms, new coding for the tech companies. And if somebody got headhunted by another company, it was perfectly reasonable that they didn't want them to take those trade secrets with them. And, you know, there are other kinds of proprietorial information that might fall into that category, such as what we pay for advertising. But what has happened in the creep that we have seen since the 1980s is now everybody's bad experience at work 
has become a trade secret. So effectively, what you're saying to people coming in is nothing bad that happens to you while you work for us can ever be talked about to anyone indefinitely, because NDAs are indefinite. They're not just for a limited period of time. They are forever, which is part of what creates this real paranoia. I, I talk to people now who signed NDAs 15, 20 years ago, and they're still living with a feeling of extreme paranoia. Uh, and, uh, you know, the smallest impact is that they no longer have any relationships with any of the uh, other co-workers that they worked with at a particular workplace where they had a bad experience. But they have all kinds of other impacts as well because they they can't talk to, or at least they perceive that they will be penalized and fined effectively if they talk to family members or to friends or even to professional therapists. You've seen NDAs that say you can't talk to your family about what happened to this company? You can't talk to your own therapist about what happened to this company? Yes, I have. They're not all that unusual, in fact. And, you know, when you look at it in the context of what I often call the first cousin of non-disclosure agreements, which is non-disparagement clauses, you have the same overreach. You're not allowed to say anything negative or derogatory to anybody. Now, you know, we do have a law which prevents people from making untrue statements. If somebody posted an untrue statement on social media, they would be subject to libel and slander laws. But this is basically saying anything that the company thinks might in any way be negative about them, you are forbidden from talking about and you're forbidden from talking about it to anybody. There are sometimes elaborate exceptions made for tax advisors, for example. And, you know, they also have to now be subject to confidentiality. But, you know, you ha might have a special exemption to talk to them. I mean, this is just bullshit. Apart from anything else, it is established law that you cannot prevent somebody from reporting a crime to police. And when sexual harassment rises to the level of a crime, or in another case, if it was perhaps a fraud, which might rise to the level of a crime, there's nothing to prevent you speaking to them in any case. But nonetheless, because people perceive themselves to be constrained, they are constrained. You probably have a greater familiarity with this than a lot of other people. Like, what are the most constrictive or overreaching NDAs that you've encountered? I've given you a couple of examples of the kinds of things that people get forbidden from saying. But let me just read you a little bit from a particular NDA that was given when an employee was raped by a male colleague and when she complained about it. She was bought out with a severance agreement and she signed this. The employee is prohibited from disclosing the employee's allegations of wrongdoing against the company. This paragraph prohibits the employee from emailing about or posting any information regarding the employee's allegations or this agreement on social media. The employee further agrees not to aid, assist, or encourage any person asserting claims against the company. And this is very common too. We find these NDAs often include a clause that say, you can't work with anybody else who's a whistleblower either. Mm -hmm. And again, I believe that's unenforceable because you cannot contract to opt out of the legal system. We, that's been established law for many years. But again, this is happening because in practice, people get away with it. And in practice, a lot of people believe that they are being legitimately constrained. So just to finish this particular agreement, it says, the employee may state only, I can't talk about it. This is written right into the agreement. A breach of this confidentiality paragraph will be deemed to be a material breach of the agreement and will entitle the company to recover damages in the amount of $20,000 for each occurrence of breach. It is so common in a case where somebody is the victim of, of sexual assault that they are aware of three other people in the same organization who are also victims. And it is by creating supports and community for each other that we learn how many people are impacted by predators. An explicit legal prohib like, like you can't help the other person who this, like. Exactly. Exactly. And just to give you another example, Jesse, because we are talking a lot about sexual harassment. And of course, as you have pointed out, this comes out in all kinds of other ways. Um, I recently spoke to a whistleblower in a senior's home who um, basically blew the whistle and saved people's lives because of neglect in that senior's home. 
She was then forced out and made to sign a non-disclosure agreement. And so, you know, you're seeing the additional costs of somebody not being able to speak up about something that really is in the public interest. You know, it's important for people whose parents are in seniors' homes that they know that people who are care workers there can speak up about neglect. And what happened to this person was that they were gagged having spoken up about it once, they were then told that they couldn't speak up about it again or the miserable settlement amount which they were given would be taken away from them. How much of this is a response to social media? Like in the old days, I I have to imagine that like what you were worried about was like a pretty rare occurrence that a disgruntled former employee might show up in the press. That didn't happen that often. But now everybody who leaves a company on bad terms is one sentence away, like one keyboard away from, you know, letting the world know what's wrong with an organization. I have to wonder if like we talk so much about how there's no privacy anymore. Everybody's just letting it all hang out. But there's this other shadow side to that, which is there's more secrecy, more privacy than ever before, because it's become normal to constrain people with these wild contracts. Yes, exactly. And I mean, I think, and this is only my hypothesis at the moment, because we don't have data yet to show this. But I think that when we eventually do, we will see a very strong correlation between the rise in the use of very overreaching NDAs and the rise in the use of social media. I mean, my sense is that this has really taken off in the last five to eight years, which is about the same period of time that we've seen so much more social media becoming part of people's everyday lives. And I think there's no doubt about it that employers are basically shitting their pants, that people will put things on social media that will in any way undermine them and cause some reputational damage. But You know, what we have to remember, Jesse, is that we do already have a legal system that takes care of people publishing falsehoods. If you publish a falsehood, I mean, you could say pragmatically, well, the damage has been done, but you can be held legally to account. Instead of which, what we're saying is nobody is allowed to publish the truth. And to me, that does not seem to be the right way to deal with this. Well, I've so frequently found myself in the position of talking to reluctant sources or sources who are thinking about going on the record but are terrified. And yes, everything you're saying is so familiar to me. They are afraid of losing connections to the people who still work in whatever organization it is they're thinking of talking about. Yeah. And then they are they're concerned also uh, because they're like, I don't even remember what I signed, but I signed something. And I'm pretty sure that I can't even be having this conversation right now. And in the case of the NDA that I mentioned, the one from the WE organization that says that, you know, your heirs will be held responsible. I have found myself on shaky ground where I've said, like, well, look. I'm not a lawyer, but I'm pretty sure that's not enforceable. I don't know how they could come to your children and say, you know, your mom spoke to a journalist, so we're suing you for her participation in a news story. But, you know, in the preliminary research I've done for case history, I just can't find much in terms of I've always suspected that these contracts, even the way they're written, just doesn't seem to be like uh, Grown up, it doesn't. It doesn't seem grown up to me, you know, that there should be prohibitions on listening to gossip. Like, how do you take somebody to court for listening to gossip? Can you give me some legal clarity as a law professor as to like, can you even enter into a contract that says that I, that you're not allowed to talk to your therapist? Like, what, what's next? You can't. You can't write in your diary about something that happened to you. Well, we've got two kind of things in tension here, and that's why I think it's so important to have legislation that clarifies this. First of all, we've got this idea that when people enter into a contract, they can agree whatever they want to agree. And that's this idea of freedom of contract. It's, you know, a sort of fundamental tenant of a Western, open, democratic society that you can make an agreement about anything you want to make an agreement with, as long as, and this is very important, you actually understood what you were making an agreement about. And as long as you weren't duressed into signing it. And as long as it's not what's sometimes described in the law textbooks as unconscionable, in other words, wildly exploitative and unfair. Now, I believe that, in fact, these NDAs are all unenforceable for those reasons. The people that I speak to uniformly did not understand what it was they were signing. 
uniformly were pressured and duress into it. And, you know, it's important to note here, Jesse, that a lot of these individuals did not have lawyers because they couldn't afford to have a lawyer. So they are facing the company or they're facing the perpetrator or they're facing the source of the wrongdoing without legal representation on their side. Even where they do have legal representation, their lawyers tend to be, as somebody put it to me just this morning, trading them in for a settlement. In other words, the idea is that as long as the lawyers can get a settlement, and goodness knows they put these clauses in every agreement anyway, is how they think about it, they'll get paid. And so the person I spoke to this morning described feeling that they were actually being traded in for a settlement, which I think is a very powerful way of putting it. But on the other hand, we have the fact that there is a public interest to be protected here. I think that it's clear that you cannot prevent somebody from bringing to the attention of the authorities, for example, reporting to the police on the possibility of a crime. So that means that there's always going to be this balance that gets struck. So we have a lot of confusion here. And what's working at the moment is NDAs are silencing people because they don't know better, because they know they've signed a piece of paper that was very, you know, legalistic and intimidating, and it told them you can't talk to anybody. I'm campaigning now, along with Zelda Perkins, for legislation that will ban non-disclosure agreements in these circumstances so that people won't even be being faced with them, and which will say very clearly you cannot make an enforceable agreement if it's something that's going to harm other people, if it's going to have consequences for the public interest. So we need legislation from the top down that will make it clear that these agreements are not enforceable and they're off the table. Let me try to unpack that a bit because there's a lot of ideas in there. Um, First of all, to the question of like, are these enforceable or not? It seems to me you answered, they are not enforceable, let us count the ways. And the first one was interesting to me. When you talk about, well, it's not a legally binding contract if somebody signed it under duress, if they were sort of pressured or... Correct. Now, that brings to mind somebody with a gun to their head, but uh, that's not how this usually plays out. Usually the way this plays out is this is not a negotiation where we're talking about whether I'm going to disclose or disparage or not. And we're two equal parties with lawyers talking about, well, in this instance, I might have to disclose in that instance, I won't. Instead, what you're really there for is you're leaving a company what you might want primarily is is your severance package, which you might be entitled to. And the company basically puts up an obstacle and says, well, we're not going to give you what you're entitled to unless. And it's presented as we're not negotiating about this part. This part is in every contract. And then you turn to your lawyer and you say, well, I don't like that part. And your lawyer says, oh, don't even try to negotiate with them about the NDA part. That's in every contract. Let's negotiate about the amount of the severance package, not about the NDA, because that's boilerplate. And boilerplate, no one's going to negotiate with you about that. So you're saying that that's the first way in which this is unenforceable is that, no, there was no legitimate occasion for the two parties to negotiate on that. So therefore, it was signed under duress. People were basically made to feel like that's a non-negotiable. It's a non-starter. Right. Then you've got this – I always thought about it in terms of basic human rights. Like I can't sign a contract with you where I become your property because slavery – slavery is illegal. And and I always – you know, I think think a lot about freedom of expression and freedom of speech. Those are basic human rights and to sign that away – both in terms of my ability to speak in public, but also to speak to the people in my life or to my therapist, it always struck me as strange that people were routinely signing away their basic human rights. Correct. And, you know, we have cases going back many, many years on this. Um, You know, I remember when I first started teaching contracts, um, Michael Jackson was making agreements with his then accusers. This is going back 25 years ago, ago now. And those contracts said that they would not report what was alleged to have happened to the police or to the authorities. And those agreements were struck down. So, you know, it is very clear and settled law that you cannot make and enforce an agreement for an illegal purpose. But the way the legal system works isn't really about what the courts might say. It's about what people think and it's about what people believe. And in this case, there is a very vulnerable and captive and, as you've pointed out, often desperate group of people who really need that severance agreement and who are being told, you can't do anything about this, just sign it. But it's a bluff. And, you know, the other way in which I would draw attention to the fact that it's a bluff is not only is it not enforceable in many cases, but in actual fact, 
it's not something that the other side is going to go to the wall for anyway, because the last thing they want is publicity, right? I mean, that's the That's the catch-22, is that, is that to enforce know. these agreements, they'd have to go to a, a – we have open – Exactly. We have open courts. Exactly. Now, here's my, here's my question for you. Uh, you're launching an international campaign against NDAs that are already illegal, they're already illegal. You're not your campaign is not to make them illegal because the NDAs that you are focused on are ones that are already unenforceable because they're illegal. So what is your what, wouldn't your campaign be hey everybody go ahead and sign whatever bullshit NDA the company wants you to sign. They're never going to enforce it anyhow. Say whatever you want on social media, make sure it's true. Uh, or else you're going to run afoul of libel laws, and you should probably be speaking truth anyhow. But don't worry about getting sued because they're never going to sue you. Wouldn't that be the campaign? Well, you know, Jesse, it's a really good point because there's a very big part of me as someone with legal training that wants to say that. But I have to also recognize that the reality out there is that people are afraid. And the reality out there is that I cannot guarantee what every judge confronted with um, a breach, a so-called breach of an NDA or a non-disparagement agreement would say. We certainly have case law in Canada that suggests that these non-disparagement clauses, which are the ones that say, I won't say anything negative about you, will be upheld by a court. Because that's something that we have seen where they haven't been able to prove duress or they haven't been able to prove that they didn't understand them fully, where they have been upheld. And there is a private arbitration model, of course, as you know, that operates in Canada in which an awful lot of these things simply get upheld by the arbitrator in any case, and they don't even make it to court. So tempting as it might be to say they're already unenforceable, I think that we need clear legislation to make this make this absolutely unimpeachable. And the other thing that I would say is that, you know, I did consider, and Zelda and I did talk for a while about a strategy that would be about going to individual businesses, and this is still important, and institutions and asking them to say, we will not use these any longer. But Another strategy could be to go to the courts and to take some of these really egregious, overreaching NDAs to the courts and have them strike them down as unenforceable. But that would mean that you would still have to keep doing that. You'd have to keep going to individual businesses, individual institutions and saying, look, your code of practice says you won't use NDAs and you just asked for one again. Or you'd have to go back to the courts and you'd have to get another ruling on another unenforceable NDA. Legislation overcomes that. Legislation says this is now the default. We're changing the default. And in future, there is going to be a presumption that unless you can show that there was full and complete comprehension, that there was absolutely no duress, and thirdly, and this is the most important, that no other person will be harmed by the suppression of this information and no public interest will be harmed by the suppression of this information you cannot enforce an NDA. And the truth of the matter is that you and I between us couldn't come up with a single NDA that doesn't affect third parties and that doesn't affect the public interest. All right. I think I understand your campaign. And I, I can, again, confirm from professional practice, from firsthand experience, that when I say to reluctant sources, don't worry, your NDA is unenforceable, often the response is, well, I'm not really interested in proving that. I'm not really interested in being sued or having the stress of a possible lawsuit and then having to go to the courts and then maybe some lower court actually finds that it is enforceable. So then I become the test case that has to take it up the chain. Uh, that sounds like a good 10 years of my life that, that I'm not going to get back. So I'd rather just not talk to a journalist. There are huge implications for journalists here. I mean, for people in your situation and your colleagues, this is significantly, it has to be significantly hampering and restricting your ability to talk to sources. This is uh, of such journalistic significance that I have to wonder how many journalism associations have signed on for your campaign, because it seems to me like this is some pretty meaningful legislation against secrecy writ large that would free up people to talk to journalists on any number of issues that are of extreme public importance. What kind of resistance are you meeting? I have to imagine that there are powerful forces against you. So I think that the majority of the resistance that we're going to get is going to be coming from the legal profession for whom this has been a very convenient and easy template to put into agreements. I want in a few years time to look back on this and for people to be saying, can you believe that we let people get away with doing that for so long? And I think that's where we're going to be.
That's your Canada Land episode. You can email me about it at jesse at canadaland.com. We are on Twitter at Canada Land. Our website is canadaland.com, where we have just published the final episode of our series, The White Saviors. We are tremendously proud of this show. We want everybody to hear it. Please, if you have enjoyed the show, tell a friend. And if you haven't heard it yet, well, what are you waiting for? This episode is produced by Tristan Capicione. Our managing editor is Kieran Oudshorn. Special thanks to Jan Wong. Our theme music is by So Called. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like what we do and you want to help us, what I'm asking this week is go tell the world about the white saviors. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's gonna get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.